I love the idea of helping people. I really love the idea of you know, seeing a problem and helping to find a solution. And that's really not any different in the law. You know, I think that it was, it was the skills, but it was also what I enjoy. I enjoy problem solving. And so I've, you know, while I'm not super creative when it comes to the arts, let's say I'm not going to, you know, write you a song or paint you a picture. Uh, I think I am a creative problem solver. Mm -hmm. And I really believe, you know, and over the course of my life and in the work that I do, I've come to conclude that the sweet spot is the intersection of what you love and what you're good at. Welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Path Distilled. And we're so excited today. We have Elise Holtzman. She's a former practicing attorney, and she's the founder of a lawyer consulting firm, The Lawyer's Edge. Welcome to the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Elise, we are so excited to have you. So why don't you tell us first a little bit about what The Lawyer's Edge is and what you do, and then we'll dive deep into your story. So as Kevin said, I am a former practicing attorney. I wound up uh, in later years getting a certificate in executive coaching and leadership coaching. So I did a full year program and I founded the firm. And what I've been doing for the last 12 years is working with individual lawyers as well as law firm leadership teams to help lawyers grow thriving practices. And basically the way I do that is I help them become better business developers and leaders. So they learn how to bring in clients in a way that makes sense for them. Um, and they learn how to step into leadership roles. Because as any lawyer who's listening will know, law school didn't teach us any of that. <laughs> so that's where I step in and I help uh, lawyers do that through coaching, training, and consulting. It's good to hear that about other fields because we always say that in my field too. So <laughs> at least we're not the only ones. Right. They teach you the academics and then they expect you to figure all the rest of it out on your own. Absolutely. So why don't you wind us all the way back to the beginning? Where does your story start? Oh, wow. Okay. I guess my story starts uh, for the law. It starts in college where I was pre-med. Uh, so I was pre-med for more than three years, I think. I, I like to say that I was smart, but not smart enough to figure out that that wasn't going to be the right path for me. And so kind of at the last second, I decided to shift gears. I think part of it was that I it just seemed like such a long haul. Um, and it also seems like, despite the fact that I was, I was a good student and I was a driven student, every other class that I took other than the hard sciences just seemed so fun and easy to me. Whereas the hard sciences, I loved it and I cared about it, but it just seemed like a harder slog. And I think I didn't want to be, it felt like I might be spending my whole life working even harder than I needed to and maybe not playing to my strengths. So I wound up going to law school I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do with that. And when I was in law school, you know, all the big firms, I went to law school in Manhattan and all the big law firms started to come and interview. And I had done pretty well. So I was fortunate to get offered some jobs and I had loans to pay back. Uh, and so I wound up in an enormous Wall Street firm. And I didn't, I knew I didn't want to do corporate work. I didn't like big corporate deals. And the idea of doing litigation scared me because I was going to have to do a ton of research, which I could have passed on. <laughs> and so I decided to settle on commercial real estate transactions, which I loved because it just seemed fun. I mean, I know for some people, their, their eyes glaze over and it's like watching paint dry for them, but that, I guess that's why they make chocolate and vanilla. I loved it. I loved doing deals. I loved seeing um, 
buildings in Manhattan that I had worked on and I had, you know, leases that I saw through, uh, and you could see the store hang its sign on the front, um, you know, developments that we did all around the world were kind of fun. And I married a guy that I met in law school. So we were both young lawyers trying to make it at big firms. And, you know, long story short, um, the practice of law in a big city at a big firm, when you want to have a life or you want to have kids, especially back then, was pretty difficult. And so, you know, we wound up in a period where we had two shifts of babysitters when we had a new baby and all of that sort of thing. And at some point, you know, without having coaches or mentors or sponsors or any of those things back then, I mean, some of those terms didn't even exist. Um, I just felt like, well, I tried it. I did it. Uh, I like it, but it's not, it's just untenable. It's just, you know, not working with our lives. Um, and so I left and, uh, you know, I've said this before, my, my kids always say that, you know, mom was born in a suit carrying a briefcase. I mean, I, you know, I love my children, but nobody would have said, you know, this is somebody who needs to be barefoot and pregnant and, you know, devoting her entire life to her children. But I did that for a while. Um, and then at some point, um, you know, the one kid turned into two and the second turned into three. And then the third one came along with some special needs. So it took me a few years um, devoting my time to them. And then I decided that I wanted to do something different. And when I found out about coaching, I got all excited because I realized that it combined all the things that I think I'm good at and all of the things that I love. So you mentioned kind of realizing several years in that medicine maybe wasn't the choice and that you shifted to law. What, why law? Why was that the choice? Wow, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that for a long time. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I was very precocious about the whole thing. It was, and my parents were sort of blindsided, right? Because it was like, oh, our daughter's, you know, she's got a path and she's going to become a lawyer and she, I'm sorry, a doctor and she'll be able to support herself and all of that sort of thing. And then it was like, oh, I don't think I want to do this. And, you know, to some degree, my parents' attitude was that's great, but you don't get to graduate and come home and sit on the couch and not know <laughs> what you're going to do with yourself. Um, so I started doing some informational interviews and I would, you know, I first started with some of the medical professions, like, you know, talking to dentists and podiatrists and optometrists and that sort of thing and seeing if there was something else out there for me that was not an MD, but was, you know, health related. Um, and then I also talked to some lawyers. I don't even remember why, but after talking to them, I, I guess I realized that the skills that come so easily to me, which are writing skills and speaking skills and advocacy skills uh, and all of those sorts of things um, were really what the law required. And so it, it just felt like a better fit for me. It was almost like a relief to find out that there was a profession that valued all of the skills that I brought to the table and that I wasn't going to need to knock myself out to be, I mean, yes, you have to work hard to be successful, but that the natural skills were there and that at least that part, I wasn't going to have to fight. That's interesting. So the it was kind of like a skills match, it sounds like, that shifted you into law. What initially got you interested in medicine? I don't know. I think I, I did enjoy my science classes with the exception of physics, which I think is just a scourge on the earth. <laughs> um, and it will never, nobody will ever be able to convince me otherwise. But I did like the biological sciences. I, I found them interesting. And I, I love the idea of helping people. I really love the idea of you know, seeing a problem and helping to find a solution. And that's really not any different in the law. You know, I think that it was, it was the skills, but it was also what I enjoy. I enjoy problem solving. 
And so I've, you know, while I'm not super creative when it comes to the arts, let's say I'm not gonna, you know, write you a song or paint you a picture. Uh, I think I am a creative problem solver. Mm -hmm. And I really believe, you know, and over the course of my life and in the work that I do, I've come to conclude that the sweet spot is the intersection of what you love and what you're good at. And so for me, that's what the law felt like. And it turned out to be true. I mean, I, I think, you know, I was, I was well-regarded for the work I did and I loved it. So I'm curious so far, where are you doing your undergraduate work? Uh, I did my undergrad at Penn, the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And then I went to law school at Columbia in New York. And so did the environment you were in, what kind of role did my, did that have any role in shaping kind of the direction you took? You know what, Kevin, you've really stumbled on something that is important that I hadn't really thought of uh, at this moment. But yes, I think that being pre-med at Penn, I've often said that if I had been pre-med somewhere else, I probably would have wound up in medical school. You know, Penn was a it's a great school, obviously, and it offered me so many benefits. Um, it's it's beautiful. I loved being on the campus. I met some wonderful people there. Pre-med was a pressure cooker, right? You had it was almost like this reduction sauce where you had like the top students from these top you know high schools all over the country, and then you have these super driven geniuses who all want to go to medical school. And it felt very competitive and it felt, um, you know, I felt a little bit out of my depth sometimes because while I was, I was ambitious for myself, I sort of liked a collaborative approach to things. And I found that with other students, but I'm not sure I, I found it so much with the, with the other pre-med students. Um, and so there was an element of that, right, where I think I felt a lot of stress a lot of the time when it came to that. And I would take other things like psychology classes for fun. Um, and find that I did really well in them without without trying that hard. If I just went and showed up and enjoyed myself and thought through the the process, um, and thought through the topic, I did well. And so obviously that was a source of stress as well. But I do think that that you know it's not for the faint hearted to be pre med at at a school like that. Sure. How did that compare to your experience in law school? Because I know we've had. Um, a guest on Alicia Powell who went to law school and then decided to go a different direction in her career also. <laughs> yeah. So what was your experience like? Yeah, so I think my experience was probably similar to many lawyers' experiences, which was that, you know, the first year of law school, again, not for the faint-hearted, you know, it's it's not you don't go there because you're you want to have, you know, the most fun year of your life. Um it was hard, but I I did find and and back then uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of the law school, actually the alumni board, there are several boards and I'm on an alumni board. And what I found is that there's a challenge actually doing fundraising among my peers in terms of the several years around the year that I graduated, because back then we didn't feel that the administration was paying very much attention to the students. It was really all about the professors and Hey, listen, you're at Columbia law school, you know, suck it up and deal with it. You're, you're getting this great degree. Um, where now, as, as an alum, I look at what's going on in law school now, and I think it's just utterly fabulous. I mean, I'm not saying that law school is, you know, a walk in the park, but the administration is very, very focused on the students. So 
you know, the experience was, it was a little bit humbling, honestly, to get there and be surrounded by, you know, obviously I was pretty academic, but be surrounded by some of these people where I thought, my God, like, what am I doing here? Right? Like the classic imposter syndrome. What if they figure out that I actually don't know what I'm doing? Um, and so, and some of those people, you know, they've all gone on to do interesting things, um, whether inside the law or outside the law. So, you know, I'm glad I went, um, I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't the most the best experience of my life in terms of a day-to-day -day living experience. Um, but I've met, met met lifelong friends there. My closest friends uh, that I've kept are actually from law school, not from college. I love being on the board. I did, in addition to getting my JD there, I did get my MRS degree there. So I met my husband, so I can't complain about that. And we actually met um, singing a love song together. We were cast in the law school show to sing a love song together which is nauseating, but true. And, uh, you know, so I, I can't complain, but it, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not for everybody. Lauren and I have joked if we could find, because we found a lot of people with imposter syndrome, we're still, and I guess we can find them if we looked very hard, but we've often wondered what would happen if we found the person that was like, yeah, I am the stuff. I've never had, right. I've never had <laughs> imposter syndrome. I am so awesome. Yeah. And so did, when you, had a conversation with your other peers, the classmates, did did you find that that was, did anyone express, did others express imposter syndrome? I don't remember a lot of people talking about that. I mean, first of all, we didn't have the terminology, right? That's something that's come into the, into the consciousness later. Um, and I don't really remember anybody totally admitting to that, but there's no question that it was there. And, you know, it's always easier to talk about the past. And I find that you know, sometimes when I'm together with people who I went to law school with, they will admit to those things uh, now. You know, it's easier to admit to it now. Um, and, you know, sometimes one of the one of the guys that I went to law school with is in my class. He's also on the alumni board with me. We sometimes have current students come talk to the board about what they're doing. So, for example, we, you know, we sponsor a fund that allows certain students to travel abroad and have certain internships that they would not otherwise be able to have because they wouldn't have the money to do it. So we'll get those students to come in and tell us about their experiences. And oh my God, I mean, we've had, you know, people who work at The Hague and people who work with indigenous peoples in Australia, you know, and helping them with their legal rights. And I remember one time turning to um, a classmate of mine and saying under my breath, how did I get into this school? Like these, these <laughs> students are so impressive. And I said, how did I get into this school? And he looked at me and he said, how did you get in? He said, how did I get out? <laughs> I thought it was really funny. So I do think that there's, you know, there's a lot of that. I think it's not limited to your field, of course. Uh, there was, I, and the reason I bring it up sometimes is my students are experiencing it. And so I often tell the story that one of the first journal articles that I reviewed for a journal, uh, the editor sent it back to the author and said, this was reviewed by three experts in the field. And these are the, <laughs> and I was thinking, oh yeah, that is, you know. <laughs> right, were they talking about? Yes. <laughs> I, no, I, I did this one, right? I love that. So, so you're talking, Elise, about how Penn was a pressure cooker. What was it like that also when you were shifted into law and shifted into Columbia or was it experienced differently? You mean when I was a, still at Penn and had made that decision? No, when oh, you got, I to, got to school. Yeah. yeah, I thought that there was, a, you know, there was a lot of pressure. Um, and 
again, some of that pressure is self-imposed, right? I mean, I can't blame it on the school and I can't, even a pen, I can't blame it on the school. I mean, we, we self-selected in, right? I was one of the people that self-selected in. Um, you know, once, once they accepted me, I decided that that was the place for me. So, but I do think that some schools have obviously, you know, different reputations, just as, as with any organization, they have different cultures. Um, and for me, you know, there was, there was some pressure at Columbia. Some of it was just by virtue of being with people who are so driven and so smart and so directed uh, and so intellectually curious you know, some of the things that people talk about there and think about there, I mean, even now as an alum, getting some of the invitations to seminars that they're holding. And I think, oh my God, you know, I, I think of myself as kind of, you know, I'm a smart girl, but, you know, I'm not necessarily an academic. I wasn't, academia wouldn't have been the right place for me. I don't think I'm, I'm super intellectual, although, you know, there might be some people that would disagree. I think of myself as being, you know, I have a couple brain cells to rub together, but I'm practical. I'm not necessarily academic. So I think there was some pressure sometimes. Uh, and I would look at other people in my class and say, you know, those people are going to be Supreme Court clerks or justices or whatever, because the academic part of it was so utterly fascinating to them. And that was just such a great fit for them. Um, but again, I think that a lot of it was putting pressure on myself. Like, wow, you know, my parents have really sacrificed to help me get to this place. You know, my parents very much were the parents who worked hard and sacrificed for their children so that their children could have the, the proper education um, and the proper enrichment and all of that sort of thing. And so in that sense, I think that a lot of the pressure becomes self-imposed. You mentioned them when you were thinking about switching out of medicine. What was the, their response to you going into law? You know, I think that I, I often joke that because of their generation and because of how they grew up, my choices for a career were sort of doctor, lawyer, and maybe if they knew what an investment banker was, that would have been okay too. Like back then, you know, for my demographic, I don't feel like there were a lot of choices out there. And also I, I'm the oldest child in my generation on both sides of my family. So I'm the first one in my generation to do everything, which means that I never have any idea what I'm doing <laughs> and it's gotta get figured out. You know, and my parents are kind of along for the ride and we, we figure it out together. So I think that when, you know, my, my parents had the experience, of, my dad worked for a company, my mom worked for a school system. And one of the things that was interesting that my parents told me, and I thought think that they were sort of ahead of their time in a sense, is that, you know, when I have one sister and no brothers, they raised us to believe that it was very important for us to have a trade. They never wanted us to rely on a company. They never wanted us to have to rely on a school system or a husband. And I was basically told, listen, what we want for you is for you to be able to hang out your own shingle. We want you to have some kind of trade so that you can hang out your own shingle and the truth is that when my parents dropped me off at law school, and I've told this story many times, um, my parents said, okay, you know, we've moved you in, we're, we're about to leave. And we want you to know that if you graduate from law school, and remember, this was the late 80s, if you graduate from law school and you decide that your career is going to be getting married and staying home and raising children, we will be just as proud of you as if you became a Supreme Court justice. So I felt like they were getting me there. They wanted to get me there where I would be able to have this skill and this trade and be able to support myself. And they were giving me choices. 
So now you're going to have this. Nobody can ever take it away from you, but whatever you want your life to look like, that's okay with us. Mm. And so that was really what their response to the whole thing was. They just wanted me to be able to take care of myself and not to ever have to rely on somebody else for survival. I love that. I love that story. So what you mentioned before that post law school, you uh, go out and start to work in corporate law on Wall Street. What was that like? <laughs> That's that was insane. So it, it's exciting, right? It's fun. You're with all of these, you know, interesting, smart, driven, hardworking people. Um, some of the deals, you know, would be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, that kind of thing. And so that was kind of fun. Um, you know, there were there are people whose names you would recognize who we either did work for or we were on the other side of a deal from. So in that sense, it was it was energizing and it was exciting. And I, you know, I was living in Manhattan and I hadn't grown up in Manhattan. I was born there, but I didn't grow up there. And so there was this feeling of kind of excitement and, and, you know, energy and it was like pulsing. And on the other hand, you know, lawyers are, they are paid by the hour, right? You're, you're get, we were getting salaries, but we charge our clients by the hour. And when you're a junior associate, your job is to learn to become a really good lawyer and churn out the billable hours. And so there were times when I was billing, now keep in mind, billing and, go, and working are two different things because you can't bill every hour you're working. So there were days when I, there were weeks when I was billing 70 hours a week or 60 hours a week. And to do that, you've got to work longer. Plus there was a commute, even though I lived in the city, I lived uptown and I worked all the way downtown. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was nuts. I mean, I pulled all nighters. Um, I would, you know, get home at one o'clock in the morning and, or, and be back at work. Um, you know, we ate takeout all the time. And so you're eating horrible food and you're under stress. And the thing is, what I will say is that since everyone else is doing the same thing, you start to think it's normal. And I remember saying to one of my, my um, colleagues, I mean, we were very junior and there was this partner that we worked for who most of them were fine, but this guy was awful. He had come from another firm and he was just impossible. And I made some comment about him and she said, she normally, she complained right along with me. And she said, oh, come on, he's not that bad. And there was this long pause and I looked at her and I said, you have Stockholm syndrome, right? Like we're identifying with our captors now. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there's good and bad there, right? There's so much potential to to learn and grow and do fun things and have a positive impact and really serve your clients, meet great people. Um, and so, you know, these law firms are terrific. I mean, they do unbelievably top-notch work. The lifestyle can be a challenge. And especially back then, you know, there was no such thing as, you know, a reduced schedule. There was no such thing as office casual. Um, you know, that was just starting and people didn't know what to make of that. It was very strange. I mean, I didn't even wear a pantsuit back in the day. It was still a skirt suit. Um, and I remember even a couple of years after leaving the law, I, I saw my sister in the city. She's a lawyer also. And she was wearing a pantsuit and open toed shoes. And I was appalled. <laughs> right. And it's, so it's funny how quickly things change because really it's not that long ago. Um, but you know, it, it, it was nutty. It was nutty and it was fun and it was exhilarating and it was exhausting. It sounds exhausting. I'm curious about the female side of it because my mom at that time was working down there also different, you know, industry, um, you know, on the trading floor in that kind of world. So 
and I was so I've heard a bunch about what it was like to be a woman at that time um what was your experience like I never felt that I had a real challenge with being a woman in the law until I had a baby which is not to say that things didn't happen. I think I let a lot of it roll off me because looking back, there were some experiences where I just went, oh, whatever, you know, and I didn't really think about it where other women would hear the story and be completely appalled. So I think that in some sense, maybe I just had a thicker skin for it. Um, I also tended to have a lot of male friends, you know, throughout my life. I've had a lot of really great male friends. And so I always felt comfortable in a crowd of guys. Um, but, you know, there, I, there was a time one time in my entire life. So it's not like I see this around every corner, but there was, I do remember a time where I was left in a conference room with a male, uh, male client. Um, and I walked into the managing partner, not of the firm, but of our department, um, the head of, of, of the real estate group at my firm. And I said, listen, I need to never be alone in a room with that guy again, because like the hair on the back of my neck went up. I mean, the stuff that he was saying to me was so creepy and inappropriate that even at that young age, I knew that I had to go talk to, and, and to his credit, I mean, this guy who was, you know, in his sixties, early sixties said, you've got it. You never need to be in a room with him alone again. It wasn't like he poo pooed me. So I, I felt, I was, I felt fortunate that I had the kind of support that I needed. Um, I, I didn't feel that I needed it that much, as I say, but when I did need it, it was there. And I also never feel like I was, I never felt that I was given any um, less compelling work because I was a woman. In fact, there was a time where I was getting the best work in the group. Uh, there were people who were senior to me and I was so overworked and I kept saying, why aren't you giving it to, I was so annoyed, like, leave me alone, give it to these other people. And in retrospect, you know, I, I was a little slow on the uptake, but in retrospect, you know, they, they respected my work and they had confidence in, in me. So there were a lot of people who wanted to work for me. So I, I never really felt that when I had a baby, the whole, I mean, the whole thing changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, I remember sitting in one conference room. So we were, I was on a deal and there were a number of law firms and we were sitting at one of these law firms where the, the conference room, like it, it looks like something out of, you know, like Lord of the Rings or something, right? There's this enormous wood table that goes on for like three miles. And <laughs> there were like, there were 16 people at the, well, there were 17 people at the table, 16 men who I would say were approximately eight, ranging in ages from like, you know, 40 to 60 and me. And I had a baby at home. And at that time, we didn't have a second shift of babysitter. And I called my husband to see if he could leave. And he had a challenge. So I needed to leave. And I wound up going home. And I propped the baby up with a bunch of pillows around her because she was just learning to sit up. And I got back on this conference call. But it was I felt like the eyes boring into my back as I walked out because I was the only one that was leaving. Um, you know, there was another experience where I was in a smaller conference room with one guy opposing counsel. And I said, listen, I need five minutes to see if I can get my husband to go home because this is going later than I expected. And ultimately we couldn't make it work. I mean, my husband did go home plenty of times, but in this, these cases I needed to leave. And I said to him, um, you know, I'm really sorry, but this is my situation. I've got to go. And he said, oh, I completely understand. You know, I have a baby too. And I said, oh, does your wife work? And he said, no, she's home full time. And so the thing is, he was trying, he was very polite, right? Right. He was really trying to be supportive, but he didn't understand because he knew he could rely on his wife. And so that was really where the challenge came. And, you know, that just became exhausting for both my husband and myself. 
Um, and that's where, you know, I, I sort of grudgingly made the decision. I mean, there was one conversation where I looked at my husband who was, could not be more supportive. He's like the best guy on the planet. And I said, well, how come I'm the one who has to leave my job? Right. But this was, you know, this was the late nineties. This was not, you know, it was still, wasn't like, oh, the guy's going to go home and, you know, be the stay at home dad. Um, so that was really where the gender thing came into it. Yeah, my wife and I tried to make a decision now who would leave the job. We would do rock, paper, scissors to see who would be able to leave first. <laughs> Sorry, Laura. <laughs> so cut you off. Um, you, so you're at this decision point, it sounds like, of making the decision to shift out. T- tell us more about that moment or that time period. That was hard. Um, I... I think that, you know, I, I had looked for a couple of other jobs. There was a job at a real estate developer, I'll say. Um, and I went and interviewed for an assistant general counsel job. And the person who was the general counsel was only four years senior to me. I mean, you know, she was a very junior person and she had graduated from the same law school that I had gone to. And I thought, well, I don't want her, this job. I want her job, right? I was just, I was so frustrated with the whole thing and ultimately decided that, well, this part-time thing doesn't work and I'm not going to find the job I'm looking for in Manhattan. And, you know, because we were basically earning the same thing, I, I graduated two years ahead of my husband. So I was actually making slightly more than 50% of our salary. We decided that we couldn't afford to stay in the city so we would move out here to New Jersey which is where I I still am Um, and so it was it was bittersweet for me I I had never really taken care of a baby by myself I mean you know she was my daughter was almost two and you know either my husband was around or family members were around or whatever and all of a sudden I the prospect of being home with a toddler every single day was a lot and I, I I think I thought when we moved to New Jersey, I'll find something else. But then we didn't really know anybody in our town. We didn't have family right here or friends right here. So then I started trying to make a life for us. And staying home ultimately was a good decision for the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm grateful that I was able to make that decision. Um, for me, as I say, it was bittersweet because I missed working and I missed my job and I missed that intellectual um, challenge. And, you know, standing outside with toddlers and, you know, playing with toys and wondering when I could go back in the house so that I could do something, you know, more productive was sometimes a challenge for me. At the same time, I know that so many women, so many people don't have the option to be home with their kids. And so, you know, that's why it was a little bit of a mixed bag because I am so grateful for that. And I think it was really good for us as a family unit and good for my children. And was that when you had just your two kids or did you have all three kids at that point? No, actually at that time I just had the one. Um, And so it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a shock. I mean, I remember like the day we moved and then like two days later, my husband stayed home for a day and two days later he went back to work in Manhattan and I looked at my daughter and I just burst into tears because I thought, my God, what am I doing here? Like, (laughs) I don't know how to do this. Um, And then, yeah. So, you know, she, I guess, um, I guess about a year later, my second one followed. And then a few years after that, my third. And you mentioned that the third has some special needs and that that played a bit of a role in your story. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how things turn out. Um, I don't think that if my son hadn't had special needs that I would have ever considered going into coaching, training, you know, learning and development. It just wasn't on my radar screen. 
And so what happened was, you know, he was born and for the first almost two years, everything seems pretty hunky dory. There started being some questions of, you know, him developing properly. Um, and then he ultimately was diagnosed with autism, you know, which is not unusual these days. And for back then, you know, he's, he's, um, as we're talking, he's about to turn 18. So, you know, this is going back 15, 16 years when we first found out about this. And it wasn't like we knew a lot of people who had kids on the spectrum. I mean, now, you know, everybody knows somebody and they can be sort of anywhere on the spectrum. And so we just, it was so blindsiding and overwhelming. And I say, you know, the way I describe it is that I felt like somebody took my baby away from me and gave me back a different baby, right? Because I had these expectations of who he was and that wasn't going to be who he turned out to be. And so there was a lot of, you know, it took a few years to wrap our heads around it, right? You, everybody has to go through their own process. Um, you know, for some people it's harder, for some people it's easier. I think every stage, as with, you know, parenting typical kids, every stage has its, has its opportunities and challenges. Um, but, you know, not only was it like the blind leading the blind when I had kids, cause I didn't have siblings or anybody who had done this before, but then this was like a whole other level of not knowing what you're doing. Um, and so it took us some time to figure that out. And, and then when I decided that I wanted to go back to work, I thought, well, I, I know what it's like to go to a firm where someone else has the power, right? Someone else has the control over your schedule. Um, someone else sets the expectations. And I really, as much as I love practicing law, because I really did, I know some people don't enjoy it. Um, I really loved it. I didn't feel that it was going to be a good fit. And I've learned since then that there are a lot of ways that I probably could have made it fit into my life. But again, I didn't know, and I didn't have role models for this. I didn't have people that I could go to and say, hey, how are you making this work? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I can't do it. And I, I literally would take the kids to school and go to Barnes and Noble and start hanging around in the, you know, in the, um, in the job you know, section or career section, entrepreneur section, and then the self-help section. And I read a book where I found out that there was this thing called coaching. And it was like, you know, it sounds sort of cliche, but it was like this light bulb went on. Hey, wait a minute. You know, I didn't know that I could do something like this. I didn't know that I could actually have a job where I help people get what they want in their careers. And so that's how it started. I started doing a little bit of research. I told my least judgmental friend what I was thinking about <laughs> before I told anybody else. Um, and then, you know, found a, a program to take. And I think there was a little bit of snobbery. It was like, well, you know, I, I went to good college and I went to great law school and really what are these people going to teach me? Like, what do they have to, and it wound up of course being fabulous. I mean, I had, I just didn't know what I was talking about. Um, but it was still at a time in my life where I was struggling with this whole autism thing. I really had not come out of that, that funk and that disbelief and the fear, I guess, of, you know, am I really the right parent for this kid? Like maybe they picked the wrong parent for this kid. Um, and so in a lot of ways, the coaching program if I never used it for my career, it would have been a good help to me. It would have been, um, I wish everybody could do the first weekend of my coaching program. Um, I can't remember what they call it, but it was like something having to do with potential. Mm -hmm. And I came out of that weekend thinking if everybody on the planet went through this one three-day course, I think we'd all get along a lot better and we'd <laughs> all be a little bit more understanding of one another and ourselves. Uh, so not only, so for me, it was part of my healing process. I think to, you know, to dive into some of these issues and to understand how to help other people, um, you know, helped me. 
Uh, and then, you know, I was able to turn it into a second career for which I'm grateful. And I, I really do love what I do. What was it like starting your business? Tell us now about being a, an entrepreneur. Well, first of all, talk about not knowing what you're doing. I mean, I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs, right? Everybody, you know, you went to school, you learned a skill, you got a job. Um, whereas some people come out of, you know, generations of entrepreneurs. And so starting a business seems totally logical to them. I just had no idea what I was doing. So, you know, you just kind of figure it out. And then, you know, where do you even find a client? Right. So I had to figure that stuff out myself. Now, you know, when I said that I was fortunate to be able to stay home full time, I also recognized my good fortune in being married to somebody who was paying the bills. Um, so if I didn't make money right away, uh, my children weren't going to starve. And I know that that's not the case for many people. So, you know, I was fortunate. I mean, he basically, you know, we discussed it and we kind of, you know, funded my, my school for this coaching thing. And then the rest of it has all been me, you know, making money and putting it into my business. I've learned so much along the way. What I didn't know could fill, you know, buckets and buckets. Um, and so I, I did, I did know that there were things I didn't know. I'm not always sure I knew what they were, but I would figure out what I didn't know. And then I did a lot of my own education. I would go to conferences and I would, you know, fly to different cities to, to take three-day conferences on marketing or, you know, speaking and, you know, all of these sorts of things so that I could grow my business. And what was weird was not only did I learn how to grow my business, but I also learned how to help other people grow their business businesses, which is how I wound up doing so much business development work. You know, I, I sort of took what I learned from other people and didn't even realize it at first that things were coming out of my mouth where I was helping my clients and then thought, well, hey, wait a minute, this people really need this. Maybe I can help them some more. And that's when the business really started to take off. So prior to it taking off, was there ever a time when you were beginning to question, was it going to happen or were, you, <laughs> were there times that you were... So yeah, I'm just laughing because if it, you know if you if you got on the phone with my sister and you asked her how many times I called her up and with a little bit of profanity involved, <laughs> you know, said to her, "I'm shutting this bleeping business down," and you know, th th I don't know why I put so much time and effort into this thing, and this is ridiculous. And you know, so my sister and I, we are so different from one another, um, but she's you know one of my very closest people in my life, and she said to me many, many times, she said, "Elise, this was part of the point, right? You can't devote as much time as you want because you're home with three kids, but uh, and you can do what you want with it, and as they grow, you can put more and more time into it, and then when they leave." you're going to have this established business. It may not be as established as you want it to be, but it's going to be there. You're going to have credibility. You're going to have credentials. You're going to have relationships. You know, and of course she was right, right? This is the kind of thing where sometimes you can't, you know, you can't see your, your own way out of a paper bag. You can help other people, but you don't see your own stuff. We all um, need to cope so, whether they're trained or not. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's, it's really true to, you know, really have blind spots about your own situation. And so, you know, of course she was right and I stuck with it. And, you know, for many, many years, it was very part-time. And now for a long time, it's been very full-time. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many times and my husband would, and my husband, obviously, you know, we've known each other a long time and I would say the same thing to him and he would say, you know, okay, honey. Right. You know, like he, he knew he just, I needed to get it out of my system. <laughs> he knows I'm not shutting it down because first of all, if I shut it down, what would I do with myself? 
<laughs> like I would go out of my mind. Like I would need something else to do. I'm not good at sitting still. So um, that was really probably never going to be an option for me. With the not sitting still, and you obviously sound very driven right from the start. Did it feel like you got were able to kind of get a piece of that back? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what was it like when you started this business? Was there that kind of feeling related to that? You know, even when I didn't have the business and I was a stay-at-home mom, uh, I I did a lot of volunteer work. And again, you know, these are some expressions that I've used, but I, I kind of ran every community fundraiser like it was an IPO. You know, I just was crazy. And my husband was like, I'm sorry, you're up at two o'clock in the morning doing these documents. Why again? <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's a part of me that's not happy unless I'm kind of a little overloaded and, you know, have a lot of things on my plate. Um, but that, so that was satisfying for a while, but it just wasn't enough because the, the things that I was doing, they just weren't as compelling to me, right? So when you talk about volunteering, they certainly, volunteer organizations certainly need your money. And then they also need people to devote their time. And there came a point where I, I had devoted so much time to certain organizations that my heart just wasn't in it anymore. And I did feel like other women who were staying home with their kids, it was time for them to pick up some of the slack. Um, and so while I wanted to continue supporting those organizations financially, I didn't necessarily want to be doing that anymore. It just wasn't exciting anymore. So for me, being able to learn something new and then turn my business into what I wanted it to be, right? The, the, I'm totally in charge. I could make it what I wanted it to be. That became the challenge for me. And that, that's been very, very satisfying for me. Um, you know, I love my kids and I love raising my kids. I love being a mom. Um, I love being their mom. I have great kids, but I think part of me being a good mom, or at least, you know, I don't know what they would say, but I think I'm a halfway decent mom, um, was having this other thing, right? Having this outlet that was just for me and that spoke to the things that I wanted and needed in my life to be satisfied. And that actually goes to the photo I sent you. So yeah, no. I know you guys, um, you know, you have your guests show these photos. And as mm -hmm. I said to you earlier, I'm not much of a photo person. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm like that terrible parent who never takes pictures of her kids. <laughs> um, and then there's my sister who has, you know, the camera surgically attached to her. Everybody's like, oh God, you know, Aunt Lori's taking pictures again. Um, so, but this photo, so this was a couple of years ago. Um, and you can see the back of my head there. I'm sitting in the front of a canoe. So my husband and I are canoeing um, in the Jackson Hole, Wyoming area. Mm -hmm. So we went out there and we went hiking and whitewater rafting and um, some other things and ate a lot of ice cream. There's a really good ice cream store there. Um, but this picture, when I found it again recently, when you asked me to send something in, it's kind of reminded me um, of what some of what I want to be doing. You know, I think you could describe my family best by calling us indoorsy, um, not so much outdoorsy. And when the kids were little, you know, we did some traveling with them, but it was especially hard with my son. You know, he's, he's not um, the easiest, or he wasn't the easiest guy to travel with. He's turned into somebody who's quite easy to travel with now. But there were a lot of times where we didn't get to go places. And of course, as with all parents with young kids, we didn't have a lot of time to ourselves. And so after taking a few vacations with the girls where we did, you know, European cities and great things like that, I thought, you know what, there's so many great 
places in this country um, where there's so much beauty and I find it just so calming. Like looking at this picture, you know, I am somebody who is, is very motivated by productivity and being reliable and being responsible and being busy all the time. And it's really only in the last few years that I've started to understand the value for me, because I've always seen it for others, of slowing down. I actually, um, I learned a transcendental meditation last year. Mm-hmm. And while I can't say I always do it as much as I could be doing it, I have found that it's been, it's very helpful just to slow the mind down because I, my mind never shuts off. And so, you know, I love, I love kayaking. I love canoeing. I just love being, I'm not a beach person. We're really more like mountains and lakes people. Um, But this is, you know, I, I'm, as I get older, I just am reminded of how important it is. And I talk to my clients about it now all the time about health and wellness and mental health in particular, you know, there's, there's not a lot of talk about that in the legal profession. It's changing. Mm -hmm. There needs to be more discussion of it. Um, But how important it is sometimes just to be still. And, you know, somebody, and, and I'm sure you've heard this expression, somebody once said to me, and I mean, I'm like the poster child for this, like, you're not a human doing, you're a human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I've always really been more of a human doing. And so I just love this picture. Because of that, I just find even the photo is calming, let alone being actually being there and being to being able to, you know, just see the beauty and see how small I am in the scheme of things, right? How things seem that seem so significant. I, I'm so insignificant, right? In the larger world. Um, and that, so that for me, that's meaningful. Absolutely. So in addition to learning to slow down, what else have you learned about yourself? So I guess I would say that I've learned to approve of myself, to value myself. And I think that, you know, we mentioned imposter syndrome before, and I think that we know that, you know, everybody goes through these times where they're not sure that who they are is, you know, you're to this or you're not that enough or whatever it may be. And I think that one of the benefits of, you know, being a little bit older and having gone through certain life experiences, for me at least, is self-acceptance, which is not to say that I don't try to improve upon things, right? I'm always striving, you know, what's next and what can I do differently? Um, And, you know, on the margins, how can I make a difference? But I am very comfortable with who I am. I think that over time, I've become so much more comfortable in my own skin. I think that part of that was turning 40 and hitting autism right around the same time, like not exactly at the same time, but with, you know, within a, a short period of time, those two things happened. And also when you have something that happens in your life, you find out who your people are. Um, and I think that a lot of people have had this experience where people that you thought were going to be there for you, um, for whatever reason, won't or can't. And I had that experience in spades with extremely, extremely dear friends of, of ours that, you know, the word autism just didn't do it for them. And that was the end of that. Um, and so I had to very quickly decide that my family was what mattered. And 
doing that and not worrying so much about what other people thought or what they thought I should do or shouldn't do or how things should be was unbelievably freeing and just gave me so much more confidence. I think I've always been pretty confident, certainly in the professional world. I've always been confident, not that I haven't had bad moments, but I've always felt that I could figure it out um, and that people can rely on me. But that really, I, I kind of doubled down on that um, at that point in my life and it's only gotten better. I mean, I'm not, you know, goodness knows I'm not perfect, nobody is, but you know, I'm also not an ax murderer. So if, you know, I, I'm at the point now, like if somebody doesn't like me or we're not a good fit, that's okay. That's okay. There are like 7 billion other people on this planet. And there are lots of people that I'm going to have great connections with. Um, and so, you know, you and I, we were all talking about this just before we got on the phone. Like I would never want to go back to my twenties, right? Not that it wasn't great, but I have such a better, you know, over the last 15 years or so, I have such a better sense of who I am and that who I am is okay. And sometimes even better than okay. Yeah, it's, I feel a little the same way. I'm in hindsight's 2020, I guess is the, what comes to mind is uh, had I known myself as well as I do now, uh, I guess all of us feel that way, but uh, I could have done a lot more at a much younger age had I known been at least in tune as much in tune with myself. Yeah, I mean, we tend to be very hard on ourselves. For sure. And, um, you know, and look, that's where a lot of coaching comes in, because a lot of it is about self-awareness and realizing that you're, you know, you're putting up these obstacles, right? There are external obstacles, mm -hmm. right? Like I want to become an Olympic snow skier, but I live in Hawaii, right? We, we know what that looks like. But most of what gets in our way is the internal obstacles or, you know, the head trash or that voice inside your head that's telling you that you're not enough. Um, and, you know, to your point, I wish I knew back then that this was the case, but that's not how it works. I mean, unfortunately, right, we have to come to it and, and that takes, you know, time and experience and, and, and that self-awareness. And also much more powerful when that happens. For sure. So you as a, a coach and you as a coach to, to lawyers, the type of business that you've set up, what do you think are your keys to success? I think that I have a combination of of um, attributes that I think have worked well for me. I think that I am empathetic and I let people know that I understand where they're coming from, right? Not that I understand because I'm not in their shoes, but that where they're coming from is understandable, right? I mean, people don't come to me with these outlandish things, like the things that they're thinking and feeling and worrying about and stressed out about, they're understandable based on their situation. And so they get that empathy from me. At the same time, I don't jump in the box with them, right? Because if I jump in the box with them, I go, oh gosh, you're right. Like this is really <laughs> difficult. And right then I'm of no use to them. You know, I'm, I'm good at making sure that I'm on the same page, that I get them, right? Kind of um, letting them know that they're being heard. And then at the same time, helping them find their own strength. You know, being willing to, you know, I just got off the phone with a client who's going through a very difficult time in her personal life, which is affecting her professional life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got this list from her of all of these things that are horrible about her. And this is an incredibly accomplished, highly educated, brilliant woman, um, you know, who's raised a family and everything else. And I finally said to her, listen, you know, would you be willing to take this on and make a list 
of why you're such a rock star. And she was like, well, you know, like <laughs> she, she just wasn't there. But I think that, you know, I'm good at helping people see what their strengths are and then helping them. I'm very practical, right? Because people don't come to me because they want to continue. You know, they might want to complain occasionally. They might want to get something off their chest. And I'm there for that. You know, I think that's really important, particularly when you're in uh, roles with a lot of responsibility, you may not have a lot of people to talk to and share those things with. So it's good to have that. At the same time, I don't want them to be stuck. And so I think I'm good at helping them get out of the muck and, and take some practical steps, um, you know, small steps forward or sometimes big steps forward so that they feel like they're moving in the right direction. And also that they're never getting judgment. And that's important in coaching, um, you know, and in other professions as well. There's no judgment for me at all. You know, my only agenda is to help them get what they want. It doesn't matter what I want for them. What matters is what they want for them. So I think in terms of actually working with clients, that's been, that combination has been successful for me. Sure. If you, this might sound like a strange question, but if you had had a coach, let's say back in your early days of being a lawyer, do you think you'd end up in the same place? Would it have been different and just the experience would have been different or do you think that you would have ended up in a different place? I love that question. I never, I've thought about it broadly, right? That there were no coaches back then, but I've never actually thought, you know, what would have helped me? What would have been different? I think that it would have been helpful to have someone to talk to that I could sort of dump all this stuff on them, get it all off my chest, you know, maybe complain a little bit, but then get busy, right? And and to have someone who understood the law in addition to having the coaching um, expertise to help me evaluate my options. Mm. I feel that I did not know what my options were. I didn't know that I had options. As I said, my my response was, well, I tried that part-time thing. It didn't work. You know, I was, I was working 40 hours a week for 80% of my salary. That was part-time. And then, you know, my husband was at his firm. So I thought, well, tried it, didn't work. That was the option. Now we're done and I have to go do something else, mm -hmm. which of course is ridiculous, right? There are tons of other options. I just had no idea what they were. And I didn't have anyone to say, Hey, what might the other options be? Mm -hmm. I also think that coaching and you know, I guess in some ways therapy is, is this way too. Coaching would have helped me take 45 minutes every couple of weeks to just focus on me. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever took that. I know I never took that time. It was like, I'm either, I'm either doing what the law firm needs for me, or I'm doing what my daughter needs for me. Um, for, and so I never took the time that, you know, felt like it would have been a luxury back then, but really I think is a necessity. So it's almost like it could have been, it could have actually been the world's worst coach and I would have gotten benefit out of it. But I think that, you know, somebody who was a skilled coach could have helped me see that there were options and not have me shut down so quickly. And so maybe things would have been different. Yeah. So what do you think is the biggest takeaway from your story, Elise? Wow. That's makes me sound so important. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of it is just again, very cliche, but just being who you are, like being okay with who you are, understanding that, you know, 
you're not going to have it all figured out ever. Um, and being okay with that, right? I like a plan. I like everything sort of figured out. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. You know, certainly my life is more stable now. Like I look at my children, you know, my daughters are young adults now. And at this time, you know, during the pandemic and political upheaval and all of that sort of thing and economic um, challenges, it's, you know, it's hard for them because they want to plan too. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's easier, right? Because I'm married, I'm settled, I, we have our house, you know, we kind of know, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it's sort of mostly figured out. Um, I think that knowing that you're not going to have it all figured out can be kind of freeing and, and being okay with being you, right? Doesn't mean change things, but at the core, you are who you are. And that who you are is okay. Like I know, you know, people used to say to me, you're so serious. And it's funny because my friends, one of the things my friends would say to describe me is that I'm funny. So I don't think, I mean, I don't think I'm that funny, but apparently other people think I do. And so, you know, but they would say, you know, I was very intense and driven and people would say, you're so serious. And it was a slur. The way they would say it was a slur. And it really made me feel bad about like, like what's wrong with me? Why am I so serious? Why do they not like that? That's my strength, right? Taking caring about what I do and wanting to do a good job, and you know, being the person that you can rely on, and all of that stuff is my strength. So I guess you know, the lesson really is, be okay being you. Um, it, it's not going to be easy sometimes, mm -hmm. and also understand that over time, the core of who you are isn't really going to change, but your experiences are going to change, and they're going to shape you, and they're going to shape how you, you know, how you show up, and, and what you're what your values are and who you hang out with and all of that sort of thing. Such a powerful takeaway for sure. So Lauren helped me uh, launch my Brad Pitt lookalike career. It was <laughs> without her inspiration, it wouldn't have happened. So I see it. I, I kind of get what uh, <laughs> she told me last time I needed a new joke, but <laughs> I definitely see it. He keeps trying to throw that one. <laughs> I usually edit them out so nobody hears them. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elise. It was wonderful hearing your story and having you share it. I think it's going to be lovely for the listeners to hear, you know, that uh, all the things you shared about being driven and, you know, learning to accept and embrace some quiet moments and accept and embrace who you are. It was really fabulous to, to hear that story. So thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it and uh, I enjoyed speaking with both of you. You guys are a great team. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all right preserved. <laughs>